Well, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for today's webinar. My name is Shannon Miller, and I'm the MARCOM coordinator for the process segment here at YSI. YSI is designed and manufactured sensors, instruments, and solutions for water quality monitoring for over 70 years. Today, we are presenting the essentials of phosphorus removal in wastewater. Joining me today are presenters Laura St. Pierre, YSI product segment manager, and Ben Barker, YSI applications engineer. Laura's worked at YSI for over 17 years and is responsible for developing new products, recommending equipment based on application needs, conducting training seminars, and technical writing. Um, and Ben has worked at YSI for over three years and provides application support and conducts technical trainings. Uh, we are presenting the webinar remotely from our homes, so please bear with us if we experience any audio issues and let us know of any technical issues in the sidebar. Uh, we've also set aside some time to address questions at the end, so feel free to ask those as we go along. And also please note that this webinar will be recorded and we'll share a link to the recording in a post-webinar email for all registrants. And now without further ado, I'll turn it over to Laura. Thanks, Shannon. Hello, everyone, and thank you for attending today's webinar on the essentials of phosphorus removal in wastewater. Just a quick note, we will be conducting a couple of polls throughout the webinar. Please take a moment to answer the question and we will share the results. We also have a short survey at the end of the webinar. Please take some time to give us your feedback. I think it's like four questions. This helps us plan for future uh, educational webinars. As Shannon mentioned, there will be time at the end for questions, or there should be. <clears throat> um, so please send them uh, via the chat bar uh, as we go through, as we go along, and we will address them as best we can during this live event. If we don't if we do not get to your question and don't get to answer uh, your question during our live event, we will follow up with you directly uh, afterwards. So Ben, Shannon, and I are all working remotely. As with many things right now, this is a first for us. Uh, normally during a live webinar, we are all sitting in a room together, giving each other hand signals or funny faces if something goes wrong um, with either the audio or the PowerPoint. Um, so we don't have the ability to do that today, so please bear with us uh, as we communicate on the side via chat and texts. You also may hear an occasional dog bark or kid scream. I apologize in advance for any disruption. I kicked my entire house off the network for this, so I am really not very popular right now. Okay, so while on the subject of working remotely, I do want to quickly give you an update on YSI and Xylem as it relates to the current COVID-19 situation. We are doing everything possible to continue to provide the instrumentation and support needed to continue your work. Currently, the YSI factory, as well as all Xylem Analytics factories, are open and operational. We are limiting the number of employees on site to only those that cannot perform their job function from home. For our colleagues that continue to go to the offices and manufacturing facilities, several measures have been put in place to keep social distancing and protect their health. Our industry-leading technical support and application specialists will remain available to you throughout the situation, and these resources are currently working remotely as well. To keep you updated in real time on our ability to process and fulfill orders, we've added an information section to our website, ysi.com. These pages also detail our ongoing response to the virus and link to useful water industry-specific information from the World Health Organization, AWWA, 
and WEF. I would also like to mention what Xylem's Watermark program is doing in response to COVID-19. Watermark is Xylem's corporate social responsibility program. In response to COVID-19, the Xylem Watermark program is dedicated $3 million of critical funding to partner with best-in-class global nonprofit organizations and support our partners, customers, and employees in communities around the world. So our customers and partners can apply for a Watermark community grant on behalf of a local nonprofit that is engaged in the response to COVID-19. Or we've also established a one-to-one -one partner customer donation match to nonprofit organizations, which are providing vital services to those on the front lines and those in need. To find out more about these programs, please visit xyleminc.com. Okay, now onto the topic of today's webinar, phosphorus removal. As our freshwater resources continue to be strained and affected by excess nutrients, wastewater treatment uh, plant effluent phosphorus limits continue to be lowered. In general, traditional treatment facilities were not designed to meet these lower limits. So this webinar will explain treatment options that can be added to your process to help you meet new or increasingly stringent total phosphorus effluent limits. And also how monitoring orthophosphate can help. So here are the topics we will be covering in the presentation. First, I will review the science of phosphorus. Next, I will review how phosphorus behaves in wastewater. Then I will review the different types of tests for measuring phosphorus and options for monitoring orthophosphate. After that, I'm gonna hand it over to Ben Barker, our applications engineer, and he will, he will review strategies for removing phosphorus and specific case studies where water resource recovery facilities implemented removal strategies that helped them meet their treatment goals as efficiently as possible. Okay, on to our first topic, the science of phosphorus. We wanna start here to give everyone some background on the chemistry. I promise I will make it quick. And I also wanna talk about why there is a focus on phosphorus reduction in wastewater treatment. I think it's always important to know why we are doing things. Let's start off with a little phosphorus chemistry. Phosphorus is essential to life. All living organisms require it. Phosphorus is one of the five main elements of living organisms, along with carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. Nearly all forms of phosphorus in our environment are a specific type of phosphate in which we have one phosphorus molecule bonded to four oxygen molecules. This is the orthophosphate ion. So how does phosphorus get into the municipal wastewater stream? Well, phosphates occur in several different places within the human body, such as within our bones, within our DNA and RNA, and within the adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which is the organic compound that gives energy to the cells within our, within our body. If we have an excess of phosphorus in our bodies, it will be processed by the kidneys and discharged in urine or feces. <clears throat> now let's review how phosphorus behaves in our ecosystem. Well, phosphorus is the limiting nutrient in freshwater systems, meaning that photosynthetic organisms like algae are able to grow and reproduce continually when phosphorus is present. When freshwater bodies have an excess of phosphorus, eutrophication can occur, 
which is when the water becomes overly enriched with minerals and nutrients, causing an excessive growth of algae or an algal bloom. Some algae produced from eutrophication, like blue-green algae, can be toxic to humans and animals. These algal blooms are referred to as harmful algal blooms or HABs or HABs, which humans and animals should avoid coming into contact with. Sometimes the algae, algae can also cause uh, dead zones in the water when enough decomposing algae removes all the oxygen from the water. These oxygen-depleted dead zones can be extremely harmful to aquatic life and can even result in large-scale fish kills. While phosphorus is a major component of fertilizers to help with plant growth, water resource recovery facilities are considered point source sources for nutrients such as phosphorus, and therefore reducing the phosphorus in the effluent of wastewater treatment facilities is part of the larger effort going towards reducing nutrients and preserving our lakes, rivers, streams, and estuaries. Okay, now on to part two, phosphorus in wastewater. In the United States, effluent phosphorus limits are regulated by the United States Environmental Protection Agency through NPDES permitting of wastewater treatment plants. Let me quickly give a little background, a little bit of background on the NPDES permitting. In the late 60s and early 70s, water quality in the United States when the United States waterways became a household concern when a picture of a burning river hit newsstands across the country. The Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, Ohio had caught fire again on June 22, 1969, after which Time Magazine ran a front page picture of the river on fire. That famous picture was actually from 12 years before because the river caught fire all the time. That fire in 1969, on June 22nd, really wasn't that bad. They put it out pretty quick. They couldn't even get a picture of it but they had plenty of stock photos on hand from previous years. So credit has been given to this Times publication for starting the public outcry that encouraged scientists and legislators to work hard to figure out why this occurred and how it could be avoided. As a result, the 1972 Clean Water Act was introduced by the federal government, leading to increased funding for wastewater treatment plants to reduce point source pollution. Over the next 20 years, around $350 billion was spent on constructing and operating wastewater treatment plants. Around the time of the Clean Water Act, total phosphorus effluent concentrations had peaked around 11 milligrams per liter. Thanks to restrictions of phosphates and detergents, cleaners, and the wastewater treatment upgrades, water treatment upgrades from the Clean Water Act, total phosphorus effluent concentrations were reduced to three to five milligrams per liter. Even with these improvements, to make a significant impact on our water quality, it was determined that further restrictions of effluent total phosphorus concentrations were needed. And by 1999, facilities requiring phosphorus removal would have limits of 0.5 to 1.5 milligrams per liter in key regions, such as the Great Lakes. Today, Total phosphorus effluent limits are spreading to new regions throughout the U.S., and some regions are beginning to achieve ultra-low limits below 0.1 milligram per liter total phosphorus. So let's review the different forms of phosphorus in wastewater that make up total phosphorus, which, as mentioned, is the parameter regulated by the NPDES permits. 
The diagram here depicts the types of phosphorus, the types of phosphorus in total phosphorus, and the general spread of these forms in untreated wastewater. Starting at the top, we have soluble reactive P, soluble reactive phosphorus or orthophosphate, um, which can be directly measured using an online analyzer. Next, we have soluble non-reactive phosphorus, which remains constant throughout the process and is usually at very low concentrations. In treatment facilities with really low limits, the soluble non-reactive phosphorus can cause a problem because it can be difficult to get rid of. And then we have colloidal phosphorus and particulate phosphorus. Particulate is the solid form, while colloidal is the intermediate form between particulate and soluble reactive phosphorus. The main point here is to notice that orthophosphate, which can easily be measured by an analyzer or quick lab sample, is soluble reactive phosphorus, while total P, which is the compliance measurement, contains all of these forms. With all these different forms, how are we able to remove this phosphorus? Well, the two primary mechanisms for removing phosphorus in wastewater from wastewater are biological removal and chemical removal. However, they both follow the same basic concept of turning dissolved P into particulate P. And then settling or filtering this particulate P out of the water. Additionally, phosphorus can be removed by tertiary filtration to help meet ultra low total phosphorus limits. So as I mentioned previously, traditional wastewater treatment facilities are not designed to remove phosphorus. In a typical wastewater facility, the influent total phosphorus is split between soluble and particulate as shown in the diagram on the left. With some particulate P removal in the primary treatment step and the biological transformation and mixing occurring throughout the secondary process, most of the particular particulate P gets converted into soluble P, as shown on the right. In this scenario, most of the particulate P is removed in the secondary clarifiers by wasting. This usually removes about one to two milligrams per liter, but as you can see, the majority of the total phosphorus remains soluble and is still being discharged to the effluent. Since most total phosphorus is not removed in this typical wastewater treatment process, we now have to add in an additional process to accomplish phosphorus removal. Let's see what that looks like. So on this slide, we have added an additional process, either biological or chemical phosphorus removal. With this extra treatment set for bio P or chem chemical P removal, <clears throat> our process now looks like this, where most of that soluble P is now turned back into particulate P and can now be removed via the secondary uh, clarifiers uh, and, and, and wasted. Okay, that brings us uh, to our first audience poll question. So I will go ahead and turn it over to Shannon. Thanks, Laura. I'm going to go ahead and launch the poll question here. So what's, what is the total phosphorus effluent limit for your facility? We'll give you guys a few minutes to answer.
see some responses coming in here. Wow, over 50% of you have voted so far. Give people just a few more seconds. Okay. All right, so it looks like uh, about 67% of you have responded. Um, we have 13% at greater than <clears throat> one milligram per liter. We have 53% between 0 0.1 and 1, 9% less than 0 0.1, and 25% have no total phosphorus effluent limit. So, thanks for participating, guys. Can you see my screen? Yes. Cool. Thanks, Shannon, and thanks to everyone who participated. Uh, ben is going to go into detail about how the different pee removal processes work. But first, let's take a look at a very important aspect of phosphorus removal, which is monitoring with a continuous online orthophosphate analyzer, which can help control, directly control chemical pee removal and or ensure uh, the biological pee removal step has been accomplished. First off, let's define the difference between measuring total phosphorus and orthophosphate. Since the NPDES permits are for total phosphorus, it would make sense to always measure total phosphorus at your facility. However, nearly all online analyzers and lab tests are for orthophosphate because it is a more convenient test to run. Let's take a look at the steps for each. Total phosphorus first requires digestion of the sample, turning all of the forms of phosphorus into orthophosphate, followed by the colorimetric measurement. This digestion process is usually time consuming and requires specialized equipment and chemicals, which is difficult for lab personnel and an online analyzer to perform. On the other hand, orthophosphate is a more simple measurement just requiring filtra filtration through a 0.45 micron filter followed by the colorimetric measurement. This test is quick for lab personnel and easy enough to integrate into an online continuous analyzer. In addition, orthophosphate is typically a satisfactory measurement for monitoring orthophosphate, total phosphorus, uh, because uh, thanks to the chemical or biological treatment, most of the total effluent phosphorus is in the soluble form post pee removal process anyways, right? As shown in this diagram we've seen before. So all that particulate pee is getting wasted out. So really the majority of phosphorus left in the effluent after a, a pee removal process is mainly soluble. So we can measure that with an orthophosphate analyzer. So let's take a closer look at the yellow colorimetric method for measuring orthophosphate, the vanadomolybdate method. It consists of mixing the sample with a single reagent, which produces a yellow coloration, depending on the amount of orthophosphate in the sample. 
A photometer then measures the sample's absorption, absorbance at 420 nanometers. The analyzer then calculates a milligram per liter concentration for orthophosphate. The yellow method is the method most widely used in online analyzers and has a detection limit of uh, 0.02 milligrams per liter. The benefit of the yellow method is that it is quite stable and repeatable compared to other colorimetric methods, meaning it is less affected by interferences and does not require time-consuming digestion. Now that we have reviewed the measurement method and you know you want to implement online monitoring for orthophosphate, let's review the four things you should consider when comparing online analyzers. First, is it easy to use or will I need a service contract? Uh, second, look for something that has minimal maintenance requirements for producing accurate, repeatable measurements. For example, does it have automatic calibration or auto cleaning functions? How often do you need to replace consumables like chemicals, filters, and tubing to keep it running? Which takes me to my next point, how much are those consumables? How much is it going to cost you to keep this analyzer running properly? And finally, transparency. Meaning, is it easy to understand how this works or is it a mystery black box? If it is easy to understand how it works, it is easier to maintain and keep in operation. So what makes up a cabinet analyzer? Let's review the five main components. First off, we have the electronics portion that contains the programming and control, which contains the programming and controls the functions of the analyzer, including processing the measurement. Next, we have the reagents and solutions. In addition to the reagent, some analyzers may, may also include calibration standards and cleaning solution if they have these automatic functions. Next up is the photometric unit where the mixing and absorbance measurement takes place. Then we have the sample delivery pumps, which are located inside this analyzer, plus additional pumps for moving the sample and solutions within the analyzer and the associated tubing. And the last main component is the filter filtration unit, which is not pictured here. As far as mounting an online analyzer, they're typically mounted either inside a building or on the railing next to the measuring location. Most analyzers available today are now capable of being outside year-round in winter conditions, though some may need the addition of, of, heat, of a heated unit. I briefly touched on filtration a couple slides ago. There are a few options for filtering the sample before entering the analyzer. On the left, we have an in-situ filter unit, which filters the water directly in the process as the sample is being pulled up with the pump. The benefits for the in-situ filter is the simplicity of operation. All that you need to do is drop the filter in the process and then maintain it. Another popular method is to use a flow-through wall unit in which you have to run lines from the basin to the wall-mounted filter. Although this may require less frequent maintenance uh, than the in-situ filter on the left, it does involve plumbing and sometimes uh, a submersible pump to bring the water to the unit. Why a size solution for online orthophosphate measurements is the new ELISA IQ wet chemistry analyzer. ELISA is part of the YSI IQ SenseNet system, which is a network of online probes and analyzers designed for monitoring and controlling the wastewater treatment process for process optimization and to ensure you're meeting your treatment goals. The ELISA can be used as a standalone analyzer or networked with other IQ SenseNet sensors 
like dissolved oxygen or TSS. The ELISA is simple to operate with automatic cleaning, automatic calibration to uh, an automatic calibration to help ensure the analyzer provides accurate measurements with minimal intervention. And for ELISA, we are utilizing IV bags or pouches to hold the chemical solutions as shown in this picture. Oops, as shown in this picture. The bags are easily are easy and safe to replace. To exchange solutions, uh, you never need to come in contact with a solution, uh, solution since the bags are drip free and you don't have to worry about spilling solution bottles. But you won't have to uh, change the solution bags very often because the ELISA uses such a small amount of reagent per measurement. At 10 minute sample intervals, you will only need to exchange the solution bags once per six months. I'd like to give you a bit more detail on ELISA's low reagent use. The ELISA uses five microliters of reagent per measurement, which amounts to less than one milliliter per day at 10 minute intervals. This is thanks to the multiport mixing valve pictured here. You can also see how this compares to previous Xylem Analytics Analyzer, like the P700 or in Trustcon. Okay, enough about us. Now I would like to turn it over to Ben Barker, our applications engineer, so he can review phosphorus removal strategies and a few case studies. All right, thank you, Laura. Uh, let me switch over to my screen now. Let's see. Okay, can you guys all see part uh, part four? Yep. Okay, thank you. All right, so the next portion of the webinar, uh, we're gonna talk specifically about how each removal process works. Okay, and here we have our three main processes for phosphorus removal. First, we have chemical removal, which is the addition of metal salts to react with soluble phosphate to form solid precipitates, which are then removed by solid separation processes, usually settling or filtration. Next, we have enhanced biological phosphorus removal, which is the enhanced biological uptake of phosphorus accumulating organisms, or also called PAOs, which are then removed by solid separation processes as well. And then finally, we have a third process called tertiary filtration, which is a post-secondary filtration uh, process designed to remove phosphorus to ultra-low levels, uh, such as below 0.1 milligrams per liter, which can also remove other things to ultra-low levels, such as solids or BOD. So first, let's take a look at chemical phosphorus removal. The process begins by adding the metal salt flocculant to the basin or channel, creating hydrous metal oxide flock called HMO. Mixing or turbulence encourages HMO formation and reaction with phosphorus. The HMO flock contains reactive sites, which absorb or bind to the soluble P. While at the same time, the HMO flock has a complex surface, which can enmesh or capture colloidal and particulate P. So the HMO flock not only reacts with soluble P, but can also capture particulate phosphorus at the same time, which is one of the reasons why chemical removal can be so effective. So what exactly are these HMOs? The image on the right is actually a scanning electron microscope image of a ferric chloride HMO. 
The image shows a complex surface of molecules, which creates many binding sites for soluble phosphorus and increases the ability to capture particulate phosphorus. Molecules are attracted to these metal salts because they produce a positive charge when added to the water. This attracts negatively charged particles, uh, which can then bind to the flock. These HMOs can be produced with a number of different metal salt flocculants, most of which are either aluminum or iron-based. Some of the common forms are below. Aluminum sulfate and ferric chloride are likely the most common, which earns them the nicknames alum and ferric that you most often, often hear. So how does this work in practice? One method that some water resource recovery facilities use is simultaneous precipitation of phosphorus, meaning they are dosing and removing phosphorus simultaneously, often accompanied by a feedback control loop with an orthophosphate analyzer. To get the best simultaneous precipitation of phosphorus, customers can feed ferric or alum just before secondary settling at the end of their aeration basins or within the mixed liquor channel. With enough mixing and contact time, most of the phosphorus will bind to the flock before it gets to the clarifier, which will, which will then be settled out and removed from the system. The remaining soluble phosphorus will continue on from the clarifier to be, me uh, to be measured by an orthophosphate analyzer like the ELISA PO4, giving us a measure of the remaining orthophosphate. Depending on our desired set point, we can either increase or decrease alum or ferric dosing. The water then heads to the effluent where the total phosphorus should be below our effluent permit. So the role of the orthophosphate analyzer is to, is to provide a real-time orthophosphate reading for which to, to control pump dosing. To do this, we need to have an orthophosphate set point to control to. In phosphorus applications, we want to choose a set point below our effluent limit. When our ortho P reading is above that set point, we need to increase dosing. When our ortho P reading is below the set point, we want to decrease dosing. The goal of the set point is to maintain our ortho P reading as close to the set point as possible. For instance, if we, are, if we happen to be too high above the set point, we are risking going out over our effluent limit. If we are too far below the set point, we are using too much chemical, which can be a huge waste on chemical costs. So when the orthophosphate analyzer sends a value to your SCADA system or directly to a pump, the pump can adjust dosing based on the set point in a few different ways, depending on the capabilities of the pump. Below are the chemical dosing uh, control types. First, we have the most basic on-off control. With this control type, the feed valve is either fully open or fully closed based on whether it is above or below the set point. As you can imagine, this is quite inefficient as you'll likely overshoot the set point and overdose the system due to the inability to fine tune the dose amount. Second, we have floating control set point. This is accomplished with three point control using an actuator valve. The three control options you have are slowly open, slowly close, or hold. The idea is for the actuator to hold its dosing when the set point is reached, thus dosing the least amount possible to stay below the set point. With more control, this allows us to be more efficient, and I'll go, actually go through a real example of how this works later. 
And then finally, we have proportional or modulating control, which is continuous control using an actuator. The dosing is adjusted continuously based on the difference between the reading and the set point, meaning the higher your orthophosphate reading is above your set point, the more you will be dosing. Continuous proportional control allows us to be the most efficient with our chemicals. Okay, so moving on from uh, chemical dosing, now we're gonna talk about the next type of removal process, enhanced biological phosphorus removal. In its most basic sense, enhanced biological phosphorus removal, or EBPR, is the, uptake, is the enhanced biological uptake of phosphorus by selected microorganisms called phosphorus accumulating organisms, or again, called PAOs. I have, an, an, I have enhanced underline here, because the entire process depends on our ability to enhance the PAOs to take up more phosphorus than they typically would. To do this, you need, you need to take your PAOs through an anaerobic phase followed by an aerobic, followed by a aerobic phase. In the anaerobic phase, the organisms are stressed with the lack of DO and nitrate. PAOs, however, utilize their polyphosphates as an energy store to continue to take up nutrients from BOD in the water, specifically volatile fatty acids, or VFAs. This causes all of their phosphorus to be released as orthophosphate into the water and allows the PAOs to store these nutrients as PHB, uh, polyhydroxybutyrate, or as other compounds such as PHA or PHV, uh, depending on the type of uh, volatile fatty acid. When the, PAO, or when the PAOs reach the aerobic phase, they will have a huge competitive advantage over the other types of bacteria due to their nutrient store. They'll begin metabolizing that DO and utilizing this nutrient store for reproduction, creating a PAO population explosion. In addition, the prior stress of depleting their phosphorus stores causes the PAOs to uptake even more per cell uh, called luxury phosphorus uptake. This greatly increases the amount of phosphorus taken up, reducing the soluble phosphorus in the water. And below, we have a few examples of what these PAOs can look like in these uh, transmission electron microscopy images. On the left, we have these, these large white circles, which are our PHB stores during the anaerobic phase. And then on the right, we have cells during the aerobic phase, which contain large black circles. These are our polyphosphate stores uh, that are taken up from the uh, phosphorus that's in the water. So let's take a look back at our process diagram. Again, we put our PAOs through two different zones. First, an anaerobic zone, followed by an aerobic zone. This causes the PAOs to accumulate bacteria uh, to accumulate uh, phosphorus within their bodies or within their bodies during the activated sludge process. This water then moves into the clarifier, in which these bacteria are settled out and removed as sludge. This sludge can either be removed through waste-activated sludge or sent back to the aeration basins via return-activated sludge to reseed the anaerobic zone with our PAO bacteria. The treated water can then move on from the clarifiers to be monitored by an ortho-P analyzer, which can give operators an idea of how effective their, EBP, their EBPR process is working. In addition to an ortho-P analyzer, 
you can use an IQ, IQ sensor net system uh, to monitor other important parameters uh, to the eBPR process, such as COD, ORP, and, D, and uh, dissolved oxygen. So here are those other control parameters for eBPR. Dissolved oxygen is commonly used for real-time control of the blowers in the aerobic zone. ORP is commonly used to monitor the biological tanks or processes within the tank. Or in other words, ORP can ensure the process is in the anaerobic or aerobic phase, or it can even control the cycle times in an SBR process, uh, sequence batch reactors. COD can be measured to monitor the COD to P ratio, which can be an indica indicator of an effective eBPR process. And this last parameter, uh, volatile fatty acids, is commonly measured using laboratory procedures, uh, but is important to monitor as VFAs are the preferred food source for PAOs under anaerobic conditions. So while the COD to phosphorus ratio can be a good indicator of an effective eBPR process, the presence of volatile fatty acids is still essential. If your influent water does not have VFAs, you may need to dose VFAs into your process yourself. Now moving on to our last phosphorus removal process, we have tertiary filtration. A tertiary filtration process in combination with chemical or biological removal can reduce total phosphorus to ultra-low levels less than 0.1 milligrams per liter. So if you are in a region with low ultra or with ultra-low phosphorus limits, tertiary filtration will likely be required to reach these low limits. Tertiary filtration is usually used with chemical or biological removal because tertiary filtration still relies on them to be effective. It requires the phosphorus to be in the solid form to be collected by the filtration systems. The common types of tertiary filtration are below, where we have sand, mixed media, cloth media, membrane, and disc filtration, and there are likely several more types. Uh, the tertiary filtration comes in many different forms from many manufacturers, so I'll not get into uh, much more detail about this in this presentation. So taking a look back at our chemical removal diagram, we can fit in our tertiary filtration just after the clarifiers. In this case, we have dual stage sand filters, which will further filter particulate phosphorus before reaching our orthophosphate analyzer and eventually the effluent. So now let's take a quick look at the pros and cons of each process. Starting at the left, we have, our, uh, we have chemical removal. The pros of chemical removal is that it is easy to implement and has a low possibility of failing, while the con is the increased operating costs associated with purchasing chemicals, which can be very expensive. For eBPR, low operating costs is a benefit of this type of removal process. However, there are large infrastructure requirements with the need for an anaerobic zone, and the influent water characteristics need to be evaluated for uh, for proper COD to phosphorus ratio and VFAs, of course. And then finally, we have tertiary filtration, which has the huge benefit of being able to reach these ultra-low phosphorus levels, but it must be used in combination with another removal process, and this equipment can be expensive uh, to implement. Okay, 
So uh, let's get back to our second poll question of the day, and I'll throw it back to you, Shannon. Thanks, Ben. Um, I'll go ahead and launch the next poll here. This is, uh, what phosphorus removal strategies are you currently using or thinking about using? And you can select more than one answer here. Um, so I'll go ahead and launch that. Give you guys a few minutes to answer. All right, we have about 60% that have responded. We still have some responses coming in here. Okay. I'm out of 65% of you voted. Um, let me see if I can share these results here. So it looks like most of you selected biological pea removal. Um, we've got chemical pea removal in second place. Some 12% tertiary filtration and about 26% don't know or no plans to implement. Well, thanks guys for participating. And I'll cool. hand it back over to Ben. Awesome. Thanks, Shannon. Uh, very interesting. Okay, so last part of our presentation is going to be uh, case studies. So let's look into some real-world examples of these phosphorus removal processes. So as an example of chemical feed control, we're going to use our friends in Waterton, Wisconsin, where they dose using a floating control set point. So they have their set point at 0.65 milligrams per liter with a holding range of plus or minus 0.05, shown in blue here. Meaning that when the reading is between 0.6 and 0.7 milligrams per liter, like it is now at 0.61, the controller will hold the dosing output at the current amount. However, when the phosphorus levels rise above 0.7 milligrams per liter, the pump controller tells the pumps to slowly increase the dosing of chemicals. If the readings drop down below 0.6, the controller will decrease the dosing. The goal is to find the minimum amount of chemical dosing to keep the ortho P levels between 0.6 and 0.7 milligrams per liter. And here's what this looks like in action. As the orthophosphate starts to increase and reaches 0.7 milligrams per liter, the feed pump is turned on and slowly increases the feed rate. When the ortho P level comes back down to around 0.65, the controller holds that output for a brief time. However, in this case, the ortho P level drops quickly below 0.6, which causes the pump to slowly decrease the feed and eventually back to zero. With this chemical removal, uh, Waterton was able to meet their uh, phosphorus limit of one milligrams per liter total phosphorus. However, when they installed an orthophosphate analyzer in 2012, 
they were able to decrease their chemical feed consumption and save 25% on their costs, resulting in a one-year return on investment of the analyzer. So very effective. In a similar fashion, Brookfield, Wisconsin was able to meet their one milligram per liter total phosphorus limit. And they could, and they did it by saving thousands of on alum costs with the installation of an IQS, IQ sensor net orthophosphate analyzer. Their goal was to become more efficient with their alum dosing in preparation for their future effluent limit being reduced to 0.075 milligrams per liter total phosphorus which is something that many municipalities have or will face in certain regions like the Great Lakes. So as a result, Brookfield purchased a YSI orthophosphate analyzer and placed it to monitor the orthophosphate concentration at their treated effluent. They are then using this concentration to automatically control alum dosing in the secondary treatment. They chose YSI for the low maintenance required from YSI analyzers including load reagent consumption and auto calibration and auto cleaning functions. Before installing an online analyzer, Brookfield was using 8,000 gallons and spending up to $10,000 per month on alum. After the analyzer, they were able to reduce chemical usage to 6,890 gallons and $8,500 per month, resulting in $18,000 per year in savings. Brookfield was able to get a return on investment for their IQ analyzer in about one year. Okay, so now moving on, uh, let's take an, a look at an example for how you can control EBPR, uh, enhanced biological phosphorus removal, with ORP in a sequence batch reactor system. With online measurements such as ORP and DO, you can use SCADA to monitor the conditions in your basins and cycle between anaerobic and, aer and aerobic conditions based on the ORP reading. So let's take a look at, uh, on the left, or let's take a look at the graph on the left and focus on the ORP reading, which is that red line. We'll start with the anaerobic portion, which begins with the ORP at 250 millivolts positive. At this point, the air is turned off until the millivolts uh, drop to positive 50, signifying the beginning of anaerobic conditions. A 40-minute anaerobic timer starts, which is when phosphorus is released from the PAOs, and the millivolts will drop even further down to around negative 50 millivolts at the end of this timer. At this low ORP point, the air will then be turned on and, beginning, and begin the aerobic phase. In this time, luxury phosphorus uptake will occur and the air will remain on until ORP rises back up to 250 millivolts, in which they'll start the cycle again. The EBPR process has been successful in many cases to achieve a one milligram per liter limit. In this case, at Sugar Creek uh, Water Resource Recovery Facility in Ohio, uh, the average effluent total phosphorus concentration was held well below their limit. So before we let you guys go for the day, I have a couple of take-home points that I'll hope you remember about phosphorus removal in the future. First, excess phosphorus causes eutrophication in lakes and reservoirs, having an adverse effect on our ecosystem. 
Removing phosphorus from wastewater can help mitigate these effects. Second, chemical and biological removal converts soluble phosphorus to particulate phosphorus, which can then be removed from wastewater by settling or filtration. And then the last point I want you to remember is that each phosphorus removal process has advantages and disadvantages, but sometimes multiple processes will be needed to reduce total phosphorus below effluent limits depending on your region. So throughout this presentation, uh, we demonstrated how you can use instrumentation and our ELISA uh, orthophosphate analyzer to monitor and control phosphorus removal processes. Keep in mind that YSI IQ SensorNet has instrumentation for all types of wastewater processes from influent, uh, activated sludge tanks, the effluent, and many more. Uh, the, I, the ELISA online analyzer platform is the newest addition to the IQ SensorNet monitoring line. It can be integrated into new or existing IQ SensorNet systems, or it can be used as a standalone analyzer for parameters such as orthophosphate and ammonium. So if you would like more information, uh, feel free to contact Laura or I by email or visit our website at ysi.com slash IQSN for white papers, case studies, and spec sheets uh, for IQ SensorNet. Uh, thank you. And now I'll pass it back to Shannon for our uh, Q&A session. Shannon? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Okay. <laughs> I was <laughs> muted. Um, so thanks, Ben. And we did have a few questions come in throughout the webinar, but we've only got a couple here. So if you guys have any questions at this time, feel free to ask those. And I think I'll pass it back to Ben to address um, our first two questions. I can go ahead and tee you off, Ben. So sure. the first question is, how do the HMOs interact with something more sensitive than a clarifier, like a membrane? Well, I think uh, the HMOs are a flock, so they're just, a, they're a solid. So if you had a, like a, a membrane type system that only allowed water through, uh, the membrane would likely, uh, likely uh, do a good job of separating the HMO flock with the uh, with the soluble water. So any, um, as long as it's binded to that soluble phosphorus and particulate phosphorus, it's not going to allow any of the soluble phosphorus to then move through the membrane. So I, I think it should, uh, you know, do an effective job of removing, uh, of removing the phosphorus from the process. The next question is, how often is the instrument calibrated? Or how often do you recommend calibrating the instrument? And I would assume we're talking about the uh, online analyzer. Yep. Uh, yeah. So uh, with the online analyzers, uh, specifically YSIs, uh, they are, uh, they have auto calibration functions. So Usually, uh, they default to 24-hour uh, auto calibration, so every day at the same time um, is usually enough and usually uh, is as recommended from uh, us at the, as the manufacturer. So about one, uh, once a day is what we recommend. Okay, and I'll take this next one. Um, is YSI planning to come out with an online VFA monitor? Um, 
the the short answer is no but i would like to maybe see if 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 ben knows if any of our sensors could be used as surrogates for uh vfas uh so i have come across this i think i've been asked this question before um and the vfas is something that probably uh could be detected by something like uh like uh like our COD uh uh UV sensor. Uh however, there's it's impossible with that technology to determine what exactly the concentration for the VFAs are. So you can't you can only you would only be able to maybe trend with COD uh with a, C, a UV COD sensor, um but identifying like exactly how much would be VFAs wouldn't be possible with these types of sensors. Um really I believe VFAs are usually uh specifically uh measured with a i think it's a i think it's a titration technique so it'd have to be an analyzer um i believe yeah so the answer is likely no <laughs> thanks ben um so these next two questions are very specific to filtration in uh ben, ben and i are experts in analytical instrumentation um, not necessarily filtration. We do have filtration experts within Xylem. Um, so if we, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and ask Ben just in case he knows, but if, if we can't answer these questions, we'll follow up with you guys directly. Um, the first one is what are the reasons, <laughs> I have no idea. What are the reasons that tertiary filtration is expensive? Well, if you, uh, if we're trying to put the entire wastewater process through, uh, through filters, um, these are, uh, these are really big, um, Pieces of pieces of equipment that are, we're trying to find or find uh, that we're trying to filter uh, through these series of filtration or of series of uh, small filtration um, apparatuses, I guess. Uh, so, just in general, I think there's just a very it's a very specialized piece of equipment that's adapted to be very large. So it's in it's in a sense just an expensive piece of technology. Uh, at least at this point. Okay. The next question, how reliable are tertiary filtration systems to get below 0 0.1 milligram per liter? Are some better than others? Uh, usually they, and you usually need a combination of two uh, uh, chemical removal types or I mean phosphorus removal. Uh, strategies to be able to get it down below 0 0.1 milligrams per liter. Uh, usually uh, chemical or biological removal can do well enough to get it below one milligram per liter, but that uh, tertiary filtration usually does the job to get it down to those ultra low levels after that. Um, so there are some are better than others. And uh, there's actually a, a, a good paper done by the EPA that uh, compared um, several different plants or several different uh, facilities that use different types of uh, tertiary filtration and they determined which ones were the best. So uh, if I, if I, I can send you that information uh, uh, afterwards, actually, I think it would help. Great. Thanks, Ben. Shannon, have any more questions come through? <clears throat> Yes, well, we have a couple more here. Let's see. Uh, 
Um, okay, so I'll get the next question started. Can you elaborate a bit more on the link between ORP and MV and anaerobic and anaerobic conditions? Let's see. Yeah, uh, so, so ORP is, uh, if you, well, one good thing that I would recommend is going to watch our uh, ORP webinar, I think we probably, which was done in November, I think, last year. Um, really, that Laura and I also did, and Shannon. I think it was last uh, August. I think it was last like, August. Late, yeah, I think it was last summer. Yeah, um, that would be a great uh, thing to thing to watch. I think we can still, uh, or we can send that, or we have that recorded, right, to where we can send to people? Yeah, absolutely, it's available. Uh, yeah, it yeah. goes it goes into a lot of detail about um, ORP values throughout the entire treatment process. It's very informative, you know, from the influent to the effluent and what kind of values you would expect based on what's happening in the process. So, yeah, I I encourage um, people to check that out on our website, on our YouTube channel, um, and we can forward it to the person who asked the question as well. Yep, so we'll do that. Um, but I guess to to quickly or to answer the question as best as I can here. Um, so ORP, uh, what you or what you require for anaerobic conditions is a lack of dissolved oxygen. So you need zero dissolved oxygen, but you also need zero nitrate as well. Um, so once you get down to those really low DO levels, uh, it's hard to tell the difference between what is anaerobic conditions and what is, for instance, anoxic conditions. So what an ORP sensor does is gives you a little bit larger of a scale to determine um, to determine okay this I'm in a my ORP reading is far negative or or is low enough to where I believe it's in anaerobic conditions uh, whereas if it would be just above that or a little bit higher it would be in anoxic conditions it's impossible to note that using a DO sensor but with an ORP sensor um, it would be able to detect the difference between the biological processes currently occurring in the process. I know we're at the top of the, or the, I know we're at the end of our hour together and we have a lot of great questions coming in. So we'll follow up with everybody um, directly, but I do think there's one very um, apropos question we should probably address while we're all together still. Um, and it is what location is better for uh, deploying an orthophosphate analyzer at the end of the aeration tank or at the end of the clarifiers and why? Would you like me to take that as well? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so the best place to, uh, to use a, or to really use an orthophosphate analyzer depends on the, uh, depends on what you're trying to do, uh, or how you're trying to control your system. So for instance, uh, there's, if you are going to use it at the end of your, at the effluent, uh, the benefits there is that you are monitoring the orthophosphate leaving your, uh, leaving your plant. So essentially, you know what's leaving your plant, which gives you a little bit of peace of mind knowing that you're, if your orthophosphate's low, your total phosphorus is probably also low. So that's good peace of mind knowing that, um, you're going to be below your limit. Um, in addition, at the effluent, a benefit of having it there would be it's much cleaner water there. So when you have our, our, either our filter or somebody else's filter, it's a lot easier on the filter if it's cleaning, 
uh, effluent water rather than when it's filtering effluent water rather than filtering uh, secondary treatment water because there's a lot of solids in secondary treatment. So you probably have to pay more attention to your filter uh, if you're if you're looking at if you're working with it at the effluent or at the uh, secondary treatment than at the effluent because the effluent the clean water is very clean so you won't have to clean it as often. Um, as far as uh, control strategies go, if you are choosing a feedback control loop, um, you would need to have you would likely have your uh, orthophosphate analyzer at the effluent. However, if you wanted to use a feed forward con uh, control loop for orthophosphate for chemical dosing, then that's the situation where you want to put your orthophosphate analyzer at the uh, in your secondaries or at the end of your secondary treatment, um, because then because uh, then you're you're getting a measure of your orthophosphate and then dosing based on that or dosing based on uh, your orthophosphate reading at the secondaries which can provide uh, some benefits as far as, especially lag time. Um, if you are dosing at your secondaries and then measuring orthophosphate downstream at the effluent, there's a lot of lag time in between what you're measuring and what you're dosing. So if you're using feed forward, you actually get rid of that lag time. So there's pros and cons to each, um, but it really just depends on what you wanna do um, and or how you wanna run your system. Great, thanks, Ben. Okay, awesome, well, thanks for attending, everybody. I hope everybody has a great rest of their day and a good week.